How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. D.A. Fonnie Willis has consented to be here with us. And so my only request from this family today is, this is a really hard job I'm trying to do. And I am an imperfect human being, but I can literally feel the people who loves me's prayers. None of us would ever say, you know, I really want to fall asleep with Sean Hannity's voice just echoing in my mind. I really want Laura Ingram and Jesse Waters to catechize me in the good, the right, the true, and the beautiful. The alternative is a we-before-me approach to marriage. And what we find is that couples who kind of really think about their marriage in terms of us and our family are more likely today to be flourishing. The new miracles today are the sacraments. Because if you go with the definition that a miracle at the time of Jesus was the creator, come to his creation to set it free, that's what Jesus does in the sacraments. Missouri dairy farmers love issues, etc. There are some Lutherans today that are embarrassed by the teaching of the six-day creation. I understand the embarrassment. It appears to go against all the scientific evidence. And, of course, many Christians have thrown that idea out a long time ago. There are even some really decent theologians in Lutheran history who had a hard time accepting a six-day creation, made great contributions, but it does have an effect on one's view of Scripture, and ultimately, if one is not inconsistent, the gospel. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. on this Friday afternoon, February the 23rd. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Zasse with Dr. Ben Mays in the first hour. Then in hour two, we'll look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the second Sunday in Lent with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Dr. Ben Mays is Associate Professor and Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's author of a column for the Concordia Theological Quarterly titled Creation Accommodated to Evolution. Dr. Mays, welcome back. Always great to be with you, Todd. Who was Hermann Zasse, and why have so many Lutherans found him very useful? Hermann Zasse was a theologian of the 20th century, born in 1895 in Germany, and his writings have been quite influential because he was one of the lonely voices within confessional Lutheranism, calling for Lutherans within the 20th century to remain Lutheran and not to cave into ecumenical pressures to compromise their confession. He died in 1976 in the country of Australia, and his life story is a really interesting one of trying to resist influences that would compromise confessional Lutheranism, finding that he was not able to fight against the ecumenical movement in Germany, and so he decided to move to Australia where he could serve the Lutherans in that country. So his writings still to this day have a lot of appeal to confessional Lutherans 
being filled with admonitions to hold fast to the Word of God and to the sacraments and to rejoice in the gifts that God gives. So he's been very influential and for the most part, I would say for the best and in a very good way. What philosophical and theological influences was Zasse resisting and reacting to? It's very interesting because Zasse grew up as a liberal. He started university to study theology at the University of Berlin in 1913. This is within the Church of the Old Prussian Union. So he grows up and is going to church and becoming a seminarian and, and begins serving as a pastor within a Union church, not within a Lutheran church. He then uh, serves in World War One, and World War One really taught him that there's got to be more. There's got to be more than this critical humanistic approach to religion. And he, with so many of his his fellow Germans at that time, due to the horrors of World War I, really found themselves reading the scriptures. And through the scriptures, and also their background as being Germans, they found the Reformation. And by reading Martin Luther in the Book of Concord, they found a message that was exactly what they were looking for, and they found a lot of comfort in that. However, as I, as I mentioned, his upbringing and his education was in a very liberal classically liberal German system at the University of Berlin. He focused on New Testament and patristics, and it was only after he was a pastor and after he had a chance to do an exchange year in the United States at Hartford Theological Seminary in Connecticut that he actually realized what Lutheranism truly is. And in the preface to his book, Here We Stand, he credits his time in the United States with teaching him what Lutheranism is and what the Lutheran confessions really are. After he went back to Germany, he served and was influenced also by the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement was at first an attempt to bring Christians together on the basis of a shared confession. And he was involved from the German evangelical side with talks with other churches in the faith and order movement. And that aspect of ecumenism is something that remained important to him, even though he did not want to compromise the Lutheran confession. So I've mentioned the classic liberal background. I've mentioned the Lutheran confessions and the Lutheran Reformation that he later on became so attached to. I should also mention that one of the influences when he was between World War I and World War II was the Luther Renaissance. The Luther Renaissance was an approach to Luther and the Reformation which really valued the early Luther and his discovery of the gospel and tended to see the later Reformation as being a betrayal of Luther's Reformation. Now, many of the people within the Luther Renaissance would go so far as to say that the Lutheran confessions should be rejected. Hermann Zasse would never say that, but there was an underlying distrust of the later Lutheran tradition. And I think sometimes we still see that with Zasse, where he really values Luther, and he values the early church, and he values the New Testament, but when it comes to the Lutheran orthodoxy, not so much. Those are especially some of the influences that he was facing. Another big influence is simply the 19th century itself and Darwinism. 
Darwinism was not the idea that the world had developed from somehow natural causes was not brand new with Darwin, but Darwin made it popular. And for Zasa, that scientific way of thinking, that scientific approach to the world, and especially the idea that the narrative of evolution, that human life evolved from lower forms of life over the period of hundreds of thousands and millions of years, is one that he found very convincing. And through his whole life, he never was able to set that aside. And so much of his approach to the scriptures we find throughout his career is dealing with how do we deal with the beginning of Genesis, which talks about a relatively recent creation of the world done in six days. How do we reconcile that with what science is telling us and what Zasa assumed to be true, that the world is much, much older and that human life developed from lower life forms? How would you describe Zasa's early view of the Genesis creation account, and why did he hold that view at first? Early on in his career, before the early 1950s, before his move to Australia, he followed along with what a lot of other German Christians in the state churches held to, which is that the scriptures are basically trustworthy, but there are places that have errors. And in some of his earlier writings, he has no problem with saying that Scripture has what he would consider minor errors. And in particular, he would say that Genesis 1 to 3 is not really accurate on how the world came into being. Sometimes he goes even so far as to deny that there is a biological unity of the human race. Okay, that's kind of an interesting statement for him to make in the lead up to the Nazi regime in World War II, and maybe it's reflective of the German culture that he was in. But Christians now, if they hold to the scriptures and hold to the literal meaning of Genesis 1 to 2, believe that there was one father of the whole human race, and that was Adam, and there was one mother of the whole human race, and that was Eve. So all human beings are biologically related, connected. We're all brothers and sisters. And this then is actually a strong reason to oppose any kind of racism. Well, that was not necessarily held by many Germans in the early 20th century. And so it is interesting that we find Zasa in some of his earlier writings undermining and denying that there is this biological unity of the human race. And that just goes together with the evolutionary approach to creation, or rather to the human origins, which would say that you didn't have one man and one woman as the original human beings. You had human beings popping up slightly different from previous versions of humanoids over a period of time and in various different places. You didn't have one distinct original man, one distinct original woman. So those are some of the the ways that he approached the early Genesis account. What's interesting is that he does not hesitate in those early part of his career to to say that Scripture had errors. But then later on, he gives that up. So how would you say his views on creation, kind of big picture on that creation account, how did they change over time? 
Well, on the big picture, my contention is that he really didn't change his view on the creation and on the creation account. What he does, though, is he, in Australia, he's in contact with confessional Lutherans. He's, he knows confessional Lutherans in America as well. And there are a lot of attempts for all of the folks who hold to the confessions, as opposed to those who want to compromise on the confessions, to come together. That was going on in Germany, it was going on in the United States, and it was going on in Australia. And so he realizes that it is not helpful to speak about Scripture having errors. And so right around the early 1950s, he gives that up. He stops talking about errors. After that point, he will not talk about Scripture having errors. Okay, but that doesn't mean that he changes his view of Genesis 1-3. to He still doesn't think that the literal meaning of Genesis 1-3 to is accurate. So what does he have to do? He has to figure out some way that that can become figurative language. And so what he does is he really, what I would contend, is he treats Genesis 1-3 to as a myth. Now, he would not say it's a myth. In fact, he says it's not a myth. But the way that he defines a myth is a word of man. So by that definition, there cannot be any word of God that would be a myth, because that would no longer be a word of God. But nevertheless, he describes the Genesis account as saying that this only describes and tells us something theological about God. It does not tell us about the, how the world was created or how the world is constituted. So this is really a similar kind of perspective on Genesis 1-3 to as what you get nowadays with those folks who argue that between Scripture and science, these are non-overlapping magisterial authorities. That's what I see happening with Zasa. He changes his hermeneutics and his way of talking about Scripture, but he doesn't really change his approach to Genesis 1-3. to That said, there are some parts of the Genesis narrative that's very challenging for him because he wants to be a confessional Lutheran, and he realizes that without the literal fall into sin, it's really difficult to maintain one's doctrine of redemption. So that's one of those areas that later on he has troubles dealing with. Dr. Benjamin Mays is our guest. We're talking about the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Hermann Zasse. On the other side, what was Zasse's understanding of God accommodating his revelation to human limitation. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the walkout of faculty and staff from the Concordia Seminary St. Louis campus in 1974. If you've ever wondered about Seminex or the walkout and what they were all about, now's your chance to learn more. Pick up the February issue of The Lutheran Witness 
You can purchase that at CPH. Visit cph.org slash witness or learn more at our website, witness.lcms.org. A Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Real Reformation Radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Truth, goodness, beauty, that's what you'll find at Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas. Faith Lutheran provides a classical Lutheran education for pre-K through high school. Learn more at flsplano.org. Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. We're talking about the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Zasse. Dr. Benjamin Mays is our guest. Dr. Mays, Zasse used this understanding of accommodation, God's accommodation of his revelation to human limitation and experience. Tell us about that. Accommodation is an old concept. It's been talked about by the early church fathers, For example, God speaks to mankind in human language. That in and of itself is a kind of a a condescension or a God lowering himself to be able to speak with the finite words of human beings. Likewise, in the Old Testament, God speaks of himself and the prophets speak of him in human terms as though he has human form like he, the, the hands of God, the eyes of God, and all of these sorts of things. These are anthropomorphisms, speaking of God as though he has a human form, even before the Incarnation. And the early Church Fathers, the Reformers, have always seen these as indication that God lowers himself to our level to be able to speak to us so that we can understand him. In fact, we can even see the Incarnation of our Lord himself as being a on one hand, an accommodation to our weakness or a condescension to our weakness. On the other hand, with Christology, there's also an exaltation of our nature in that it shares in the divine person. But now, how does this play out when we are dealing with science that seems to contradict what the scriptures say? And this is where Zasa picks up this idea of God's accommodation and actually goes further with it than what the early church fathers did. Ever since the Enlightenment, especially Socinian theologians, made it popular to use this idea of accommodation to say that God not only accommodated his language to human ways of thinking and human language, but even to human errors. 
And so, for example, they might say that we know that miracles cannot happen, but the silly people in the Bible times thought that it could, and so God played along with them and pretended as though miracles can really happen. The same thing was done with belief in angels and demons and all kinds of other things, even the the resurrection from the dead. That was an Enlightenment trick to use the concept of accommodation, which is right and true, but to apply it not just to human thought and language or perception, but to human error. This especially became important during this controversy in the early 16th century on whether the world or whether the solar system has the sun at the center, a heliocentric worldview, or has the earth at the center, a geocentric worldview. The older way of looking at it was that the earth is the center of the universe and that the sun revolves around the earth. Well, Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler thought that it was not that way and had really good scientific reasons for why that's actually a lot more accurate and uh, helpful to talk about the earth going around the sun. And so that became a real challenge. The Roman Catholic Church famously put Galileo on trial before the Inquisition in the 1630s, and that really raised Europeans' awareness of how much of a problem this was. And you had conservative Catholics and Lutherans and Reformed who were considering it to be heretical to hold to a heliocentric, sun-centered solar system. And one of the reasons that they did this is because of Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, there's this sign that the Lord gives, and the sign is that the sun is going to stand still. And it doesn't say that the earth is going to stop moving, but that the sun stands still. And that was seen as proof for the conservatives in the early 17th century that the sun goes around the earth. With time, Christians learned to say, actually, what's going on there is that God is accommodating the scriptural language to human point of view. It's not an error, but it's accommodated to the way that we observe the world. It's similar with our language now, in that we say that the sun rises and the sun sets, even though it might be more accurate to say that it's actually the earth just spinning. But nevertheless, that's still the way that we speak, because we speak from a human-centered point of view. And that is, it took a while, but eventually Christians did come around to that point of view. So with that as the background, now Zasa is thinking, okay, great, that's what they did in the early 17th century to come to terms with the science of the time. We need to do the same thing with evolution nowadays. And so he uses this idea of accommodation, however, and goes beyond this idea of a human-centered observation of the world to actually saying that there is some erroneous and outdated views of the world that God's revelation was being accommodated to. So how would you describe Zoss's attempt to, he thought he was going to end up in a middle position between evolution and a literal reading of the creation account, but it sounds like he just stuck with evolution and recategorized the creation account. Yes, but he does not accept every aspect of the secular view of evolution. So he takes what 
is certain to him, and what's certain to him is the confession of the Lutheran Church and especially the New Testament. He takes what St. Paul says about Christ being the second Adam. He takes what the Lord Jesus says about the world being God's creation. And also, he knows that it's necessary for there to be an original sin in order for there to be a real redemption and for Christ to be the real Savior of humanity. And so he tries to find not really a middle path, but more like an amalgamation, taking some parts of what the theistic evolution position would be and some parts of what the the traditional Christian doctrine would be. So essentially what he does, though, is he changes his hermeneutics. He's got different rules for interpreting Holy Scripture. He starts by saying that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are figurative speech, poetic speech, It is not, according to him, trying to set forth literal facts about how the world was created. That's just part of his his basic assumptions of how to deal with Genesis 1 to 3. Then the next thing that he does is he uses what he calls the law of parallels. He notices that Genesis 1 to 2 verse 4 gives the account of creation and then starts over again. And he notices he thinks that these are not able to be harmonized with each other. And as a result, because they cannot be harmonized, we really cannot take Genesis 1 and 2 as giving literal facts about the creation of the world. So that's the next thing that he does there. And then finally, he says that until the 17th century, no Christians ever made a dogma about a view of the world whether it was created in six days or not. And so therefore, he thinks, because this wasn't done by Luther, it wasn't done by the Book of Concord, we shouldn't do it either. So with that, he then essentially says that the secular scientific dating of the world is right, that it's billions of years old, and that life has been developing over millions and billions of years. He says that's basically right, but he disagrees with the the evolutionary system because he's got to find some way to bring in original sin. Let me give you a couple of other examples of people who have tried to do a Christian evolutionary theology. One is the Roman Catholic Pierre Tillyard de Chardin. Tillyard de Chardin was a paleontologist, a Jesuit, and in his writings he set forth a view of evolution in which God created the world imperfect, and then through millions and billions of years, the world is getting more and more perfect. It's developing. It's becoming better and better. Now, that's a way of looking at Christianity and looking at the world, which is very consistent with evolution. It starts off in a very chaotic state and becomes more and more ordered and better. It also fits very well with Pelagian views of salvation, that one essentially makes himself saved by becoming a better and better person. Zasa completely rejects that, even though that is a very consistent way of combining Christianity with evolution. Instead, Zasa wants to hold on to a view of Christian theology in which there is somehow some state of integrity, some state of perfection from which humankind fell in sin that then required a Redeemer, required God's Son to come to us and save us by his death, and then for us to be justified freely without any works of our own. 
But his view that does this really has no basis. To be really consistent as a theistic evolutionist, he would have to do what Pierre Tillyard de Chardin did and be consistent that salvation is also evolutionary. Zasa doesn't want to do that. And so his acceptance of the development of humanity in a evolutionary, progressive, developing way, it's like he brings humanity through millions and millions of years to a state of perfection, and then there's a rebellion which requires the Redeemer to come. The other thing that's inconsistent about his approach to salvation, Christian theology, and trying to amalgate that together with evolution is that he doesn't deal with the place of death before the first human beings. We know that the wages of sin is death. Zasa doesn't deal with that. He just assumes or pretends like almost treats it as though there can be this development of humanity to a greater from lesser beings without somehow the shedding of blood and survival of the fittest. He just doesn't deal with that because that would go clean against this idea, this true doctrine that the wages of sin is death. And he doesn't want sin to be there before death, but that's what it has to be if you consistently hold to an evolutionary standpoint. So he tries to take a middle position, but I don't think it's a very consistent middle position I think he's he's really trying to preserve what he truly believes as a confessional Lutheran and reconcile it with some things that just cannot be reconciled, namely his deeply held faith in science. When we come back, it sounds like Herman Zasse was trying to have his cake and eat it too. We'll get Dr. Benjamin May's thoughts on that as we discuss the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Zasse. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Continuing education for the confessional Lutheran. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
not only does our church need men right now, but the world needs men who will proclaim the gospel in its purity. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Peter Scare, Associate Professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. If when you go to sleep at night you're thinking about it, my experience with it is this, is that thought won't go away. So if you're going to bed at night thinking about following our Lord and becoming a preacher of this gospel, then I would love if you could come and visit Fort Wayne, our campus. We'd love to show you around and show you what it is that we do. Have you ever considered becoming a pastor? Contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Christ-centered, cross-focused, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Dr. Benjamin Mays is our guest, Associate Professor and Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're talking about the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Hermann Zasse. So, Ben, what was wrong with Zasse's attempt to have his cake and eat it too when it came to the gospel and the fall and the creation account? Well, the scriptures simply don't say that. I think it's very clear that what's controlling his exegesis is actually what science, what popular science would say is the truth. And so he's actually got a magisterial use of reason that's controlling his exegesis of Genesis 1 to 3. It doesn't matter what it actually says. For him, it cannot mean that because of what secular science is saying to him, which he thinks is is completely without question. As an example, he he ridicules this idea that the world would be a few thousand years old because we can look at the stars that are millions of light years away and we see their, their light coming to us now. In his mind, that necessitates that this world must be millions of years old at least. That's one issue is that he is actually approaching the scriptures and not letting the scriptures be authoritative. Uh, his view of the the evolutionary development of the world is what's really controlling his his exegesis of those of those passages. There's that, and then also he tends to make the creation account minimalistic. The creation for him becomes not anything else but a couple of key truths: that there was a real creation that there's this strict distinction between the creator and the creation, that God created the world from nothing, and that the image of God is faithful hearing of the word of God, and that there was some kind of original sin. But there's nothing more to it. And yet there is actually more in the creation account. One of the things that's there is that God created for six days and then rested. He created for six days and then rested. And that actually shows that there's a distinction, a clear categorical distinction between God's creative work and his maintenance of creation. Instead of constantly creating a new and developing world, he creates the world which has a stable existence and stable 
life forms, we might say, and then God maintains it. If you basically have an evolutionary view of the world and you're consistent and you're letting this inform your theology, then you're also going to have an evolutionary idea of God and of revelation, that revelation is continuing to develop. So what God said in the past to the prophets and the apostles might not be true anymore. That's something that actually the creation account of God creating for six days and then resting, stopping his creative work, it actually helps us to push back against. The very creation account teaches us that the creation is stable, God has made it this certain way, and now he maintains it rather than constantly creating new things. So that's another aspect of how Zas's view just doesn't really work too well. So what was the purpose of the account for Zas? You mentioned these minimalistic, but what is the purpose of the account framed the way it is for Zasa. Well, as I said... I mean, why include a creation account at all if it's not going to tell us anything? Well, actually, he would say, sure, it it teaches us a lot because there are a number of creation myths in the ancient world, and usually these creation myths include the world being somehow an outgrowth from God or some kind of a birthing from God. And what Zasa emphasizes is that, no, there actually was a real creation, and it's a creation from nothing. And so the creation is dependent upon God, but not as though, but God is not dependent on the world. The, the world is, is simply his choice to create the world. So in many ways, he's taking these classic Christian confessions of the creation and saying, yeah, those are true. We have those here. But the problem is that he's not doing that for every part of the ancient Christian confession of creation, which also includes that God rested on the seventh day and, and stopped creating new things. Are there particular problems with evolution that Zasa simply left unaddressed? Well, I would say that he certainly didn't deal with the presence of death and of survival of the fittest as something that would be responsible for the rise of human beings. He just passes over all of that quite quickly and just suggests that maybe that's the way that God created mankind. And by doing that, he really is not able to make very good sense of the statement that death is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. You say that Zase may have affirmed in some form the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, but unwittingly rejects its authority. What do you mean by that? In the Enlightenment, as I had mentioned, the the system of accommodation was used not just to talk about God accommodating his revelation to human language and human point of view within this created world, but also to human errors. And we certainly see that. Zasa would not say that there's any error in Scripture, but he does often talk about the biblical view of the world as being outdated and something that we can no longer follow. We can no longer hold that because we have been taught by science that that's just simply not how it is. So he's affirming then, he wants to affirm the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture because he realizes that that is indeed the teaching of the Reformation. He realizes that is indeed the teaching of the New Testament. But what he does with this idea of accommodation, 
By saying that scripture is accommodated to erroneous views of the world or outdated views of the world, it means that if he thinks that there's some view of the world which is outdated, then he no longer has to agree with it. So that's a real problem, because that is the exact same move that was used in the Enlightenment to say that we don't have to actually believe in miracles or in the resurrection. And I would also point out, and in fact, Zasa himself has pointed this out, that the same kind of move was used by Zwingli and also those who followed Zwingli to deny the real presence of the Lord's Jesus's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. In their way of thinking, it is simply impossible for a human body to be in more places than once. It is impossible for Jesus to be up in heaven and for him to be in the Holy Supper of many churches here on earth at the same time. And because it's impossible, that impossibility is what then governs their reading of Scripture. So if that is the way that you're approaching the Scripture, you might think that it's inspired and inerrant, but if it says something that doesn't make sense to you, then you're not going to believe it. And therefore, your view of what is possible and what is impossible, that is to say, your reason is actually the base foundational authority for your faith. That is something that is quite obvious, that Zasa is doing the same thing with his approach to creation and Genesis 1-3 to as what Zwingli did with the Lord's Supper and what the Enlightenment theologians did with miracles. So, yeah, it's exactly, I stand by that. He affirmed inspiration and inerrancy after the early 1950s, but even though he wanted to uphold its authority by his refusal to give up his scientific faith, he actually was undermining its authority. So, really a classical example, an inconsistent but classical example, of the magisterial use of reason as opposed to the ministerial use of reason. Absolutely, absolutely. Do we know if Zasi ever returned to an Orthodox view of Scripture? That has been debated. I know that Kurt Marquardt was of the view that he did return to an Orthodox view of Scripture. He certainly stopped speaking about errors in Scripture. But I don't think that's right. And in fact, German scholars that have read Zasa's work have seen that he did not fundamentally change his view on on accommodation and his view on the authority of Scripture and especially on on science and how science relates to Revelation. So I would say that he became better because he gave up talk about errors in Scripture, but he didn't actually get to an orthodox view of Scripture. Now, Kurt Marquardt was of the opinion that he, even though Zasa was working on this book on the doctrine of Holy Scripture at the end of his life, he never finished it. And Marquardt was of the opinion that he never finished it because he realized it was just an impossible task. And in private conversations with Zasa before his death, Marquardt was of the opinion that he had come around to an orthodox view of Scripture. I don't have those personal recollections, never having met the man. He died in 1976, the year after I was born. So all I can go by is with the writings that he's left us, and from what I've seen, I've not seen him returning to an orthodox view of Scripture. Dr. Benjamin Mays is our guest. We're talking about the creation account of 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Zasse. Well, Zasse lived long enough to see liberal Lutheranism flower in America. What were his thoughts on that?
You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. The radio voice of the Lutheran faith for the 21st century. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's Life Ministry cares for pregnant women sharing the love of Christ. Listen to Pastor Ed DeWitt with Redeeming Life Outreach Ministries. One of the first residents we had said to me, Pastor, why do you do this? And I said, just stick with me through this class. And when we're done, you'll understand completely. Many of the women, as they go through the instruction, when we get to that part about baptism, they're like, Pastor, I want that for my baby. I want my baby to be adopted into God's family. God's Mission here, lcms.org slash national mission. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about the creation account and 20th century Lutheran theologian Herman Zasa, Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, is our guest. Well, Ben, Zasa did live long enough to see this low view of Scripture play itself out in American Lutheranism, did he express any concerns about that? All I know is that he was not a big fan of the folks who walked out of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, in 1974. He was not in favor of that. He was on very good terms with Concordia Theological Seminary in Springfield at the time and with Robert Preuss. They exchanged letters. Many of his letters to Lutheran pastors were printed in, actually, of all places, Wisconsin Lutheran Quarterly, the Theological Journal of the Wisconsin Synod. So he was certainly not on the side of the progressives in the Missouri Synod at that time, but he belonged to an earlier generation, and just because he was opposed to those folks that walked out didn't mean that he was opposed to everything that they stood for with regard to their approach to Scripture. What questions, if you had the opportunity, would you pose to Zasse on his views of creation? There's a number of them that I would put to him. If Genesis 1-3 to is myth, 
if it is simply accommodated to the outdated worldview of the ancient Near East, why could we not say that the same thing applies to the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper or to the physical resurrection of Christ? If one holds true, why not the other? That, I think, is something that Zasa should have dealt with. I would also ask if his standard for truth, at least with regard to the, the way in which the world came about, is actually not the literal sense of Scripture, but is actually what paleontology and astronomy tells us, is this not a magisterial use of reason and experience? that he's letting reason and experience determine the meaning of Scripture. And if that's the case, how can Scripture actually work to reform anything? Also, he has this view that parallel accounts that differ in the details mean that they cannot be harmonized. And so because there are two different Genesis creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, Therefore, the details cannot be taken literally. Well, if that's the case, then why should we believe that the details of the Gospels have to be accepted literally, since we have not just two of those, but we have four of them? Also, Zasa has this view that the creation of the world, the beginning of the world, is can only be described in picture language, figurative language, kind of like the Revelation of St. John in that it's not supposed to be taken literally. Well, if it is beyond human experience and cannot be described, why then does Zasa describe how he thinks evolutionary creation really happened? If creation is beyond description and beyond human experience, how can he presume to describe it along the lines of evolution? Also, while Zasa refuses to harmonize apparently contradictory biblical narratives, he does harmonize the biblical account with what secular science says is the way that the world came into being. So why will he not harmonize parallel accounts in the scriptures, but he will harmonize the scriptures account of creation with that of science? Why not simply leave them both standing as contradicting each other? I would also point out that his acceptance of evolution discards the distinction between creation from nothing and the preservation of creation. I've talked about this as the distinction between the first six days in which new things were created and the seventh day in which God does not create anything new but simply maintains what he has created. In Zas's view... Only the creation of the primordial matter, that beginning chaos, was from nothing. But everything else develops over the course of eons. But that then contradicts what Genesis 1 and 2 reports about the completion of day 6 of creation. A categorical distinction between the creation and its preservation. Which is something that evolutionary theory forbids. So if he's trying to be according to the evolutionary theory on this, why not be consistent and go all the way? Also, Zasa, why does he lack a discussion of the state of integrity of Adam and Eve before the fall? Why does he not deal with the whole issue of sin and death before the fall, or rather death before the fall, which is supposed to be the wages of sin?
to try to hold to the rest of the evolutionary theory except for this point, is this not untenable according to Zasa's assumptions? Will he not either have to return to the authority of the literal sense of Genesis 1 to 3 or completely give up this idea that there was a state of innocence, a state of perfection, a state of integrity? Because the evolutionary theory does not allow that. Also, why can Zasa defend miracles and the virgin birth of Christ, which are scientifically impossible and have repeatedly been considered myth, but he can attack the literal meaning of Genesis 1 to 3, a six-day creation and a young earth, which to many people seems scientifically impossible and have repeatedly been considered myth? Again, can creation be considered a miracle? I think so. I think creation from nothing is a miracle. Now, if it's a miracle, why should science be competent to dictate to us how it actually happened against the literal sense of Genesis 1 to 3? If it is a miracle, then science is not able to really speak to it. So those are the sorts of questions that came to mind as I was reading Zasa on this topic. And I think that there are no good answers to them. I think they show that his position is untenable. Finally, how did Zasa fail to understand or address the connection of a literal creation account with the gospel itself? First of all, let me just say this. There is a connection between the literal creation account and the gospel itself. And it has to do with the reality of the things that we believe, that there really was an Adam and Eve. There really was a fall into sin that really required a redeemer, not just a helper, required somebody who was going to redeem us from sins, a God-man who would become one of us, and that these things are facts, and that the gospel is not a matter of evolutionary betterment, always trying to get to some infinite omega point. So I, I do want to say that the literal creation account is important for that. I actually think that Zasa did see the importance of most of what is in the literal creation account, and yet he failed to defend those facts of the literal creation account in his theology. But he did see, he saw that this distinction between God and creation is extremely important. And that's an issue that Pierre Tillyard de Chardin, for example, in his evolutionary Christian theology did not maintain. For him, there's not a categorical distinction between God and creation. Zasa maintained that, although I think that he was inconsistent in doing so. Also, Zasa saw the importance about a real fall into sin, even though this, too, does not fit well with an evolutionary theology. And then, likewise, Zasa saw the importance of the possibility and the reality of miracles. Uh, but again, to espouse the evolutionary standpoint, as though to say that whatever science says is trustworthy and should be used to change our interpretation of Scripture, that's going to undermine the miracles down the line. But unfortunately, because he could not give up his faith in science, he had to strive to preserve the foundation of the gospel in his evolutionary view. But in the end, he's inconsistent, satisfying neither Orthodox Lutherans nor real evolutionary scientists. So I think that he saw the connection between the gospel and the literal creation account, but I think that he failed to preserve the foundation of the gospel in his theistic evolutionary system. 
So, Ben, let's end kind of where we began. Does Hermann Zasse and his theology have anything to offer confessional Lutherans today? I really believe he does. I've been talking against his views for a while here, but I really want everyone to understand that Zasse is probably the Lutheran church theologian, the best one of the 20th century, but not because of what he said about Scripture and and creation, but really about everything else. His writings on the church and the ministry, his, his writings on confessional faithfulness, his striving to center people not on their subjective feelings, but on the means of grace, on the reliability of God's Word, and, and on the sacraments. And again, his, his constant call for the lonely Lutherans of the world to maintain their confession against all temptations to give it up. All of these things, I think, are worthy of us to continue to learn from him as a father in the faith, keeping in mind that even though we might consider him as our teacher, on this one issue of scripture and creation, we're not going to follow him there. But on everything else, we really have a lot to learn from him. Dr. Benjamin Mays is Associate Professor and Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he's author of a column for the Concordia Theological Quarterly titled Creation Accommodated to Evolution. Find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Mays, thank you. It's always great to be with you, Todd. Up next, we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Sean Denzer about Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ in Mark chapter 8. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc., Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.